My name is Akemini Uwan. I'm a public theologian, a member of the International Civil Working Group for Permanent People, for the People Permanent Forum for People of African Descent, co-founder of Truth Table Podcast, and the co-author of Truth Table: Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation. I am a devout Christian woman. My faith is bound to the brown-skinned Palestinian Jewish God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. My faith follows in the tradition of African and African-American women, starting with my Abibio grandmother, Eret Ebek Johnson, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, Nanny Helen Burroughs, Mariah W. Stewart, and Ida B. Wells Barnett. These women placed their faith in the liberator, the Lord Jesus Christ, and lived to liberate their own people in defiance of the ubiquitous, counterfeit, white supremacist Christianity of their day. This is the Christian tradition to which I belong, and it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that I declare that churches owe a debt. As a public theologian, it is my duty and calling to put forth a liberating framework where the dignity, livelihoods, and flourishing of all African people and people of African descent are upheld. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. What I am ashamed about, aghast at, and angered by, is the Catholic and Protestant church's complicity in the oppression of my people. It is a lamentable fact, a lamentable fact, that the church, both Catholic and Protestant, were the architects of and the primary vehicles through which the transatlantic slave trade, chattel slavery, colonialism, and imperialism, among a host of other wicked enterprises, spread on and through the African continent and beyond. Therefore, I am calling the church to account on theological grounds for its egregious sins against Africans and African-descended people. Ecclesial, theological, and hermeneutical malfeasance via the doctrine of discovery, the curse of Ham, and other wicked interpretations of the Bible laid the groundwork for African and African-descended people's perpetual oppression. Reparations is personal for me. I am a black woman, an African-American woman, a Nigerian-American woman, an African woman, a Nigerian woman, and a Bibio woman. Therefore, I don't speak about slavery and reparations as an outside observer. According to Dr. Randy J. Sparks, 1.2 million enslaved Africans were transported from the Cross and Niger rivers in the 18th century. That's 10% of the 12.5 million Africans stolen during the transatlantic slave trade. My people, the Abibio people, make up a significant portion of the 10% of Africans stolen and brought to the Americas. The church must be called to account for its reprehensible contribution to the constellation of oppression mentioned above. And I'm calling on the UN and my fellow reparationist comrades to include the Catholic and Protestant churches in the quest for global reparations to Africans and people of African descent. Failing to do so is a grave miscalculation. Churches owe a debt. Thank you, and I yield. Welcome to The R Word. We're here to talk about reparations in the church in Northwest Arkansas. Today, Dustin and I will talk to Ms. Akemini Uwan. Akemini is a public theologian, international human rights activist, co-founder of the award-winning podcast, Truth's Table, and co-author of the award-winning book, 
Truth Table, Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation. McKimini is a charter member of the International Civil Working Group for the Permanent Forum for People of African Descent at the United Nations. As one who is passionate about theology, McKimney has a fierce commitment to the gospel and its implications for issues pertaining to reparations, racial injustice, anti-Black racism, and white supremacy. White supremacy. So McKimney, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me on. I'm glad to be here. And I failed to mention uh, our co-host, Dustin McGowan, is with us here today, too. So, <laughs> Dustin, uh, we're happy to have you, too. Glad to be here as well. So let's get into it. Uh, Akimini, first, uh, can you share some of your story with us? Who are you and why are you here today? Yeah, so sure. So I am um, born and raised in California, <laughs> and uh, sunny, sunny California, and uh, first Actually, not for a second gen uh, generation Nigerian American. My parents um, immigrated here in the early 70s. Um, and so, yeah, so I um, grew up in a, in a Christian home, uh, Lutheran to be exact, is what my, my parents, you know, um, the, the, the denomination they came up in is um, Lutheran, actually, the Lutheran Missouri Synod. And so you can hear. Uh, imperialistic and colonial <laughs> ties, the whole shebang, you know, there. Um, and my my grandfather was actually a, a pastor too in um there in Nigeria, in southeastern Nigeria, which is um in that part of Nigeria is called Akwaibum State. Um and uh, I descend from the Ibibio people, uh, which is a neighboring ethnic group to the Igbo people, um, which both ethnic groups among many others were taken in the transatlantic um, slave trade. Um, about over a million um, of our people were taken taken in the transatlantic slave trade, and so uh, so my my story, you know, and my 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 origin story and my social location is very much um, wrapped up, you know, in the story of not only uh, of the history of um, African Americans in this country. Um, but Black people, African people um, globally. And so uh, that's a bit of my own story, or even in some ways how I, I come you know, into this work um, as a reparationist um, activist. Uh, there's a lot of ways that I came to it, <laughs> you know, um, through various detours and changes God ordained <laughs> detours and changes in my life um, from working in corporate America to the Lord taking me out and then putting me in seminary and um, and whatnot. But uh, that's how I show up, at least in these uh, in the in the reparation um, conversation and space. And so and I think it's unique in that you don't often hear, um, ironically, uh, you don't often hear um, Africans um, or yeah, just Africans speaking into the reparations conversation, but it's very, very critical uh, that we do. Thank you for that introduction, Akemini. Um, We appreciate it. And today we want to talk to you about your speech, Churches Owe a Debt, that you gave to mm. the United Nations. But before we do, I wanted to ask you to explain your vocation to our audience. So you describe yourself as a public theologian. So can you comment on what a public theologian is and why you've adopted that adjective? 
Yeah. So yes. <laughs> so yes. Yeah, so when I um, went into seminary, I didn't really know why God was sending me into seminary because I was very much um, dedicated to my local church, which was a black um, Baptocostal <laughs> egalitarian non-denominational church, you know, and uh, churches like that, you're you are really, you know, so church services are quite long. You have intercessory prayer, you know, just a lot of different um, uh, activities within in the church to help with and aid with your spiritual growth. So I was very much um, in leadership there at the at the church, kind of core leadership there, doing a lot of discipleship in Christian education um, there at my local church. And so when I um, yeah, when I sensed that God was calling me into seminary, I didn't quite understand why, because I didn't have a sense that God was calling me to the pastorate. So I was like, well, what else is there? You know, I think sometimes people, that's that's all we think about. When we think about seminary, we think this person's going to seminary to be a pastor. Right. Um, but there's a lot of other things you can do, y'all, <laughs> when you go to seminary, when you come out of seminary. And so um, I went in not really knowing why. I just knew that God was calling me to go into seminary. So I did a lot of praying um, by faith, as I was walking in obedience to God um, in that way. And uh, and just through that prayer and just through walking and doing what I'm supposed to do, doing the next right thing, you know, um, as people say, you know, uh, I kind of feel like I fell into this, but I didn't, you know, <laughs> God had already known that this is what I was going to be doing. So um, I just started getting called to speak at different conferences, to speak with regard to race and the intersection of race and Christianity um, and helping, you know, people uh, make sense, you know, of what God and God's word has to say about the things that were going on in our day and are going on in our day. When I entered seminary, um, uh, Trayvon Martin had just been killed. Um, Michael Brown hadn't yet been um, um, killed yet. And so I was right at the very beginning of Black Lives Matter, um, the, of the Black Lives Matter movement. And then, you know, then unfortunately the subsequent deaths continued to come after Michael Brown. Um, and so, yeah, so it was very, very interesting time to be in seminary and I was having to make sense of that. Um, and so I began to, um, yeah, to develop frameworks, you know, and entry points about how, how, how we ought to understand um, and how this, the gospel uh, uh, speaks against colonialism and imperialism and um, the ways that capitalism uh, exploits uh, people. You know, and so, um, and how it's been used, obviously, on the, the backs of our African ancestors um, for this country to be built anyway. You know, so I um, start to make sense of those things. So as a public theologian, a public theologian, um, the way I define it is somebody uh, who speaks about um, God and, and does God talk in public. <laughs> so, so really, I'm trying to help um, myself and other people make sense of the issues of the day, you know, so anything from politics, culture, race, um, those, those things or those issues, topics that come up and there's real existential questions that people are asking and they, they're really want to understand like, what is the theological import? They're not, they don't have that language. They're not saying that, but they're saying, 
huh, you know, why are these things happening? Why do good people suffer? You know, um, questions about what we would call theodicy, right? How can God be good in the face of suffering? Um, and we know that that's um, something that we all experience, you know, to varying degrees in this life. And so people, um, I'm there to provide um, some handles, uh, to help to provide some uh, um some information and some frameworks that are accessible to the to regular people um, that are just trying to make sense of their faith, or maybe they have no faith at all, you know, and maybe they don't have any faith at all because they see the suffering and what's going on in the world. Um, yet, I believe that the word of God has an answer for that. I believe the gospel has an answer um, for that. Of course, we know in part, don't know everything, but um, that's my job. I I, the way I see it is it's my job to try to help people make sense of that, to, to bridge that divide or that, that apparent chasm for people between God and God's word and what we're dealing with today. Mm -hmm. That's so good, Akimini. Thank you for that explanation. I think part of what we're trying to do on the podcast is uh, public theologizing in that um, we're so, so thankful for the relationship we have with KUAF. Uh, our local radio station with a library across the street, and to have a conversation in public, uh, in part about the relationship between uh, faith and race, and to do so in a way that is accessible to, as you said, people who have faith and people who do not, uh, or do not have Christian faith, um, and to have that conversation in a way uh, that is accessible to and respectful of uh, different kinds of folk. So thanks for your example to us in that. You're welcome. Um, so you gave your speech, Churches Owe a Debt, uh, which we listened to at the beginning of the episode, to the United Nations in Geneva, Switzerland in December of 22 as a charter member of the International Civil Working Group for the Permanent Forum for People of African Descent. That's a bit of a mouthful, but my understanding <laughs> is uh, that the forum is a group of folks who help the United Nations combat racism against people of African descent. Um, but can you comment further on what the group does uh, and why you're a member of it? Yeah, so um, the International um, Civil Society Working Group, um, it's been a long time coming, honestly. The reason why it was established was actually in response to the UN's um, uh, finally <laughs> creating a permanent form for people of African descent. There's a permanent form um, for indigenous people. There's a permanent form for women. There's, you know, permanent forms for different, you know, people groups, but Africans um, and people of African descent do not have um, a permanent form, a place where um, the issues and the, the real um, concentrated uh, systemic um, and deeply rooted issues that impact um, people of African descent can be uh, dealt with, um, can be combated um, in a form that that did not exist um, until about August of 2021, I believe is when that forum was established um, in after um, George Floyd's, uh, George Floyd's lynching. And so, um, so our International Civil Society Working Group uh, was formed in that same year in 2021 um, as a mechanism to hold the UN accountable to its stated <laughs> mission and, and objectives of the forum. So that's not just simply uh, 
put up there to placate us, you know, or um, just there as some scaffolding, you know, with no real <laughs> uh, um, foundational pillars, you know, to, to begin to move forward um, the issues and, um, and, and the, the really the liberation, you know, of um, people of African descent. So the civil society working group uh, is comprised of people of African descent from around the globe. Um, so I have the opportunity of working with um, comrades and, and fellow activists from all over um, the globe who I would not have met <laughs> if I wasn't a part of this charter group. Um, uh, of the of the International Civil Society Working Group, we get together once a month, and we begin and we work together. We have different subcommittees, you know, uh, that work on different issue topics from education to com to communication, um, uh, to health, and a whole lot of different subcommittees that that work independently. But then we come together um, once a month to make sure that we're moving forward on you know on our our objectives and um, being a part of that charter member, uh, a being a charter member of that group, uh, our group actually has a lot of influence um, at the UN. And so we were able to, um, at the second session, which just happened um, over Labor, I'm um, not Labor Day, sorry, uh, Memorial Day uh, weekend, that whole, that whole week in uh, New York, we were, we went to New York, uh, the UN headquarters, and there we were actually able, the reports and um, things that we compiled as a group, uh, we came out with um, issue topics that we thought was important, pertinent and really important for the permanent forum to focus on for the second session. And um, I'm glad to report that actually uh, those issue topics that we um, landed on actually were put and adopted into the agenda for the second session of the permanent forum. And some of those topics were reparations, number one. <laughs> Firstly, <laughs> reparations, of course, uh, disaggregated data, making sure we get that um, health outcomes, you know, for uh, for Africans and people of African descent, um, as well as um, economic equity. So a lot of different, you know, um, issues that we brought up were actually able to be um, put on the agenda there for the second for the second session of the permanent forum. Uh, so yeah, so I'm glad that I was that I'm a part of that and I'm able to have. Um, my voice and my perspective heard, even, you know, how I went to, I'm sure, well, you all heard my speech, my statement um, that I gave at uh, the first session, the inaugural session um, there in Geneva, Switzerland. And that statement uh, was uh, accepted and adopted into the historical record for the UN um, inaugural permanent um, forum session. So, so we're just trying to, you know, make as much of an impact as we could can. We believe we got to work within systems, you know, as imperfect as they are, <laughs> work within and outside, you know, uh, of institutions in order to move forward, um, not only the cause of reparations, but the other issues um, that impact people of African descent. How has been the response uh, to your, your, uh, your talk at the UN? Uh, how has that progressed? How people responded to what you've said, um, your other constituents? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, the response was actually really um, positive and really, really, um, really encouraging in that um, a lot of people tend to forget the spiritual or just don't even think about um, the spiritual aspect or even the church's hand 
in the transatlantic slave trade and in U.S. chattel slavery. I just lift that up because that's the context that I'm in as a U.S., but obviously this, these things happen in the Caribbean as well. These things happen on the continent through colonialism as well. Um, but a lot of people tend to forget that or don't think about it or it's an afterthought. And so um, my there has um, been a positive response to my statement because it's just some it's um yeah it's just something people hadn't really thought about or even considered um, and so that for me was encouraging you know to be able to bring um, a different perspective um, into the conversation not only as a Christian but I would say even as an African woman and being able to um, bring that intersection you know to bear um, and so that. I think that has been rewarding, at least to me, because I, I do try to um, provide some sort of value add <laughs> when I speak. I'm not just trying to speak uh, for the sake of speaking. I mean, I, there are a lot of brilliant people that spoke. I'm not the only one, you know, <laughs> that spoke at the UN and, and that do speak at the UN. Um, but if I'm going to speak, I've tried to make sure that I'm bringing something that's different or, or um, yeah, or something that just hadn't been thought about or hadn't been raised. Had somebody else raised it, then I would have scrapped my statement. There's no need for me to say it. I don't have to be the one, I'm, you know, I, you know my, my agenda is to move forward uh, reparations by any means necessary. And that doesn't mean that I have to be the one doing that, you know, but, uh, but I, if I am the one, then, I, then I'll step up and do that. Um, so, so yeah, I had a warm reception. Um, you know, uh, to that, to that, you know, to that statement. And so, um, and even, even at the second session, my, um, my statement was also well received there too. Yeah. I was able to see both statements and it was really, uh, great to, to see you in that space. <laughs> I do have another question related to that. And just, uh, how would you describe the, the difference about how that conversation happens on an international level with the UN? versus, you know, here uh, nationally, locally, how, how are those conversations the same or different? Yeah, um, you know, I think the reception actually is kind of weird. It, diff it differs. I think the message for me is is still the same. You know, I think, it, I think the message is still the same, you know, but I think that if the question was, you know, well, how did the Vatican receive what you said? Well, I don't know how did that all that. But imagine there might not be such a glowing response, you know, <laughs> you know, to what I said, right? because I'm, I'm, I'm putting the, they're, they're in the crosshairs, you know, them and the Protestant church are in the crosshairs, you know, of my statement. Um, but they don't have to be, if they do, if they do what's, what, what they need to do, if they do what's right, you know, um, what the gospel calls us to, then they don't have to be. <laughs> it's very simple solution, actually. <laughs> we just have to repent and repair. Uh, these are the, the basics of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know. Um, so, yeah, so I think that, I think if it was domestic, um, when I think about uh, domestic versus international, you know, um, reception, you know, when you're in the UN, you're kind of, you're among like-minded people, you know, to some degree, these are all, you know, people that have come all from around the world, right? African, people of African descent. So you're not going to get any real disagreement with what I'm saying there. I think people on the outside, you know, <laughs> are the ones that might have, you know, um, a not so not such a great, you know, reception or a warm reception to that, but the message is still the message. And I think that, um, that's when I take my cues from Jesus, 
which is to set my face like Flint, you know, and do what God's called me to do, which is the same thing that Jesus did was he set his face like Flint and went to that cross, you know, for the joy set before him, you know? And so for me, I'm just like, I'm, I have a singular focus, you know, which is to do what God called me to do and um, to uplift uh, my people and to help liberate our people in that. And I have to do that regardless of how it's received, you know, so I don't concern myself too much with how, um, how people receive it. Although reception doesn't matter. You have to be able to, which is why I do also talk about the spiritual element, because I do, I do think it's a spiritual matter. I do believe it's a spiritual stronghold, you know? And so if we don't account for that, if we don't do those, if we don't see that, then I think we're actually going to miss the boat, you know? Um, like we can get reparations today, but if we don't, if we don't get to the repentance and we don't get, we don't get the apology, we don't get to the rep, the repentance that leads to repair, you know, from the church, particularly, then we're still going to miss the boat. We're still not going to get it. And we're going to still continue to spin our wheels because it is a spiritual, um, it is a, firstly, it is a spiritual issue. Um, and I think that, um, when that's recognized, then true healing um, healing within the soul can take place, not just healing, you know, monetarily. We need that too. <laughs> we need those repairs, you know, monetarily. We need that materially through land, you know, on the land back movement and, and whatnot, but, and through repatriation, if that's people, if that's what people want to, um, do, but we do need some true soul healing and that can only come through true repentance and repair spiritual repentance and repair i'd say yeah i really appreciate that akimini i so enjoyed your speech um in part because of its concision uh i think that it really packed a punch um and it also um sort of uh spoke to some of the themes that we've discussed previously in the podcast and two of those are like and and you kind of alluded to this already but the both and nature of reparations uh, so that was one theme. And the second is the either or nature of the gospel. And I'll try to explain those uh, quickly and then ask you to comment on them. So by the both and nature of reparations, Akimini, I mean that the wide scope of white supremacy requires us to embrace reparations in more than one way. Uh, we've talked about the difference between uh, domestic and international. Um, but in your New York Times interview with Tish Harrison Warren about reparations, you suggest that we need, quote, all hands on deck, and that reparations requires responses by both the church and the state at the local, national, and even global levels. So can you comment on uh, what I've called the both-and nature of reparations? Yeah, yeah. So um, the scope of the harm, you know, um, I mean, it's ubiquitous. You know, it just, it is. And so there's just, you, you're going to be hard pressed to find, you know, um, clean hands. <laughs> so, you know, that's in the church, that's in the insurance sector, that's universities, um, denominations, individual pastors. I mean, um, the scope of, of it, the, the capitalist system that we're, we live under, I mean, you're going to be hard pressed to find clean hands, you know, um, when it comes to, uh, the, the wicked enterprise of the trend that is the transatlantic slave trade, um, which also, um, uh, engulfed, uh, um, to some degree African middlemen too, you know, so 
so there there is um unfortunately there's a lot of a lot of blood um to go around and so uh when i say all hands on deck we have to have um uh, uh truly we truly do need a prophetic um, I, i'd say even eschatological imagination <laughs> about what reparations looks like um you know i think in my second speech or statement at the un i said um you know it's reparations it's a check plus you know and the pluses keep going on and on um because of the um the totality of the harm and the scope of the harm that continues to harm our people till this day we are a traumatized people um that's continental africans particularly continental west africans uh and diasporans african diasporans and so um, there no none of us are unscathed. I don't care what anybody says. <laughs> you know, people are people can be in denial about that. They want to be in denial about that, but that's just the truth of the impact. You know, of um, what that um, system you know has done to us and is you know doing to us um, still. Um, and I say that still because there's there has not yet been um, the full sale. Um, true apology and repair and repentance that needs to take place. Now, reparations is happening, you know, so it's not people ask, you know, is bullet happening in our lifetime? It is happening. You know, it's happening in a local, on the, on, on a local level, um, with, you know, say for instance, say first repair, what they're doing in, um, Eviston, you know, um, uh, Illinois, um, you know, it's happening uh, on, under Ruth's leadership, you know, it's happening all, all over, you know, um, with the land back movement, it is happening. Um, uh, but I, my focus is really making sure that this, this happens on a federal and on a global, um, level as well. That way we can make sure that, um, uh, all people, all parties that are harmed are accounted, um, for that their harm is accounted for, you know, so, cause I think that I just know that the ways that we operate in this country and that, well, this person did it and we'll, you know, we'll try to speak piecemeal and be like, okay, this little patchwork reparations work that's happening. That's not to diminish it. That's sufficient. We don't actually have to do <laughs> a federal, you know, thing. We don't actually have to pass HR 40, you know, which is just a study uh, you know, study reparations, which we need, that needs to happen. Um, we don't actually need to do global, global reparations, you know, because these things are happening. It's like, no, it needs to be a both end. We need all of those things happening all at once. And so, um, so to me, I'm like, we, 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 if we can be, if, if, um, if, uh, people that were oppressed us can be so creative with their oppression, Okay, we got to be that much more creative <laughs> with um, with with how uh, with restoration and, and what it looks like to repair people and to restore people to whole as best as we can on this side, right? Um, so, what does that look like? You know, and we have to begin to unleash a prophetic and an eschatological imagination around that. And when I say eschatological, what I mean by that is. Um, um, uh, eschatology has to do with things that concern the end of things, the end times. What we believe as Christians is that we will have full and complete restoration and redemption in heaven and in glory. But we get a foretaste of that even now uh, because Jesus Christ's uh, ministry, his death, his burial, his, his burial, his resurrection um, has uh, brought forth 
the blessings of the new age, even into this present evil age. And we know it is a present evil age. You turn on the news, you live with it, you lock your doors at night because you know that where we are is really just not safe, right? So we feel that, you know, uh, however we want to delude ourselves, we know that, we feel that every day and we live with the consequences, you know, of, of sin in our in our lives and in our world. Um, and so um, we can we can begin to, um, how can I say to, yeah, we, we can begin to experience some of that, <laughs> some of those new age, some of that eschatological blessings, even now, even if it's a shadow, even if it's a foretaste, we can begin to do that now. And we ought to, uh, and the church ought to be um, seeking to do that now, to make that a reality now. Thank you for that, Akimini. I am um... You know, you, you are the conclusion to season two of our podcast. Um, so we've spoken to a number of really important people who speak to reparations uh, from different positions and with different perspectives. And so we've talked about church-based reparations and state-based reparations and, uh, you know, reparations from a domestic perspective uh, with folks like uh, Greg Thompson and, and with William Darity. Um, but I think that you're you're a really um, appropriate conclusion to the podcast in that we really not talk to anyone who's considered reparations at the scale uh, that you're considering it at, which is which is global, right? But I appreciate what you've said and, and communicated about uh, well the both and nature. Uh, you said you know these these local efforts are not to be uh, discounted; they are important, but they're not sufficient. Um, and so that has been such a, a, a good challenge uh, for me and I think for our community as we think about how do we practice reparations locally to say whatever we do will be important, but it will not be sufficient. And we're a part of a, a bigger uh, work, a bigger uh, global community that needs to take up the work. So, so thankful uh, for, for that message that we've received from you. Welcome. Glad to glad to deliver it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so I want to transition to the second theme uh, that I heard from you. That's consistent with uh, what we've talked about in previous episodes of the podcast, and that is uh, the either or nature of the gospel. And so, by this, I mean that the gospel of Jesus requires us to embrace either the person of Jesus or white supremacy. So, in your speech, you claim the faith tradition of African and African-American women in the, quote, brown-skinned Palestinian Jewish God-man Jesus Christ. And you suggest that while you are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus, you are ashamed of, quote, the Catholic and Protestant churches' complicity in the oppression of your people. So can you comment, Akimini, on the either-or nature of the gospel? Yeah, well, I think I'm even just um, dovetailing from even the first part where we were saying, I do I do want to say clearly that, yes, I'm pushing for federal and global, but I do think that even in saying that, nothing on the side will ever be complete, right? How how can you? <laughs> There's, it's impossible. You know, it's, I would say it, it is impossible to fully repair, you know, the harm, uh, you know, you know, what's the dollar amount? you know, for um, um, for a mother being snatched away, you know, from her spouse, you know, or um, or her nursing child, you know, what 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 is what's the dollar amount, you know, for being ripped from your land? Um, what is the dollar amount um, for being raped perpetually 
treated treated like chattel and being converted into a breeding woman, you know, for the purposes of breeding. What? What's the what's the amount? You know, how? You know, how you can so it, it'll never ever be sufficient. That does not mean we don't we do not get economists and calculate and they do the math, because there is some math to be calculated um, about the gains, you know, that were um, uh, um, um, that came from the transatlantic slave trade and uh, um, from chattel slavery, not only in the U.S., but also in the Caribbean, right, and and colonialism and, and all of those um, things and the things that continue to harm us even now, right? So I do want to make that clear that you know, there's never, right, you're never going to get, right, to uh, uh, um, to restore, to com- to hold completely on this side, you know, which is why this is why the spiritual as- aspect is so important. But the gospel does, um, because, you know, it, the gospel talks about whose we are and who we are and how we ought to live, you know, in light of what Jesus has done. And then we do <laughs> confess sin, then we do repent, and then we do make repair, um, for said harms, you know, so that that is part and parcel of the gospel. Uh, Jesus is central, you know, um, to our faith, and Jesus Himself is a reparation for us because we there was a chasm between us and God. We were enemies of God um, uh, until we were able, by God's grace, to confess our sin and to confess our need for Jesus you know, as being the only one who can save us um, from ourselves um, and save us from the wrath of God, which nobody preaches about no more, but that is the gospel. And so, and and that's just the fact of the matter. And this gospel um, uh, is anti-imperialist. This this gospel is anti-capitalist gospel. This gospel does not collude with empire. It just does not. Jesus was, in fact, executed by the state. Absolutely. But also our sins killed Jesus. And if we don't share in that guilt, then we cannot share in the grace of the of the of of Christ. We just cannot. Um, And so uh, so for me, it's not really an either or it's it's for and against If you for Jesus. Then you must also be against these things. (laughs) So. Because the gospel is against, you know, um, those things. And the gospel just does not collude um, with the state in any way. And so I think the the issue here in America is that we have um, imbibed um, a, 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 a corrupted gospel uh, that actually says you can collude with the state, that actually does say ah, a little dab of capitalism here and a little dab of imperialism here is just okay as long as I get <laughs> what's mine, as long as me and mines are okay. Um, and has no care for the, for their neighbor, um, which is uh, the second greatest command that Jesus gave us behind loving God with our, all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Um, and the second is like it, like love your neighbor as yourself, right? So, um, so yeah, I think that's the issue for us here in, at least in the West, you know, I can't speak to the rest of the, of the globe, but I do know that this gospel, this counterfeit gospel has been exported. I do know that much, you know, to what degree people are imbibing it overseas. I don't know. I can't speak to that because it's not my social location. Um, but yeah, I, I would say it's, 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 it's a for or against. <laughs> so that's, that's actually the way I see it. Uh, and it is absolutely against uh, white supremacy, which is a myth. Um, and we are called to 
resist myths and myth making. Um, yeah, and anything that's an idol. And we know that white supremacy is not an idol. Absolutely, it is an idol here in the US. And we know that white supremacy, unfortunately, is global, right? It is a global project and it is something that everybody has to contend with to varying degrees around the world at this point. Mm. Very good, very good. That is, mm-hmm. uh, I could talk about that all day long, <laughs> the, mm-hmm. the need to, to reflect on what you're, you're talking about right now. Um, but one of the things that, that uh, I wanna talk about is something that happened you know, some years ago, we're not going to talk about where it happened at, but uh, you were on a, a, a panel at a conference um, of mostly white women, and you uh, talked about something that uh, was fascinating to me at the time um, and connects a lot to, you know, some things that Dr. King writes about. And you talked about, you know, the, the, the perpetual harm, reverberating harm of white supremacy. And you talked about how it's robbed both black and white people. Um, can you speak um, uh, to that? Yeah. So uh, I mean, well, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's something that I write about even in, in the book, the um, Truth Table: Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation. I mean, one of the the first chapter in that book is called "The Audacious Perseverance of Colorism." You know, and colorism is, you know, brief definition. Colorism is um, discrimination against people. Um, intraracial discrimination um, among um, a particular um, ethnic group or racial group um, and where we're in um, dark darker skinned people are disadvantaged and discriminated against because they are darker um, and uh, where people that are lighter um, are uh, preferenced and have more privilege than people of darker skin and this happens um, within all well, just about every non non-white non-black um racial group you know and so um and and white people too also um can practice colorism meaning that they can preference you know people of lighter skin over darker skin people and we the reasons why we know that is that we see this show up in the carceral system you know where um black women that are of a darker hue um, get dark, uh, get longer, sorry, dark, longer sentences than people of a light, lighter skin hue, or um, where darker skinned women uh, do not earn the same amount of money as, say, um, lighter skin women, right? So that lets you know that this is something that's not just, um, that does not just show up within interpersonally, but there's an actual structural uh, element, you know, to colorism. Colorism is is structural. And so I bring that out because and the book has all the, the numbers on the, the millions, the, the, the millions of dollars that the bleaching industry accrues um, because people see bleaching as a way to move up, you know, um, the the that beauty ladder, if you will, you know, and so that in 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 response to the discrimination and the ways that darker skinned people are received, perceived and treated in society, and again, this is global, um, people will buy and do buy bleaching um, products um, by the dozens in order to in order to lighten their skin. And this is a practice that I still see among even um, family friends and relatives in my own family. You know, I was just in California and I just saw 
you know, some relatives that look significantly, significantly lighter um, than they were a few years ago when I saw them. Um, and it's still an issue that comes up today. I raised that um, because that is one of many manifestations of white supremacy um, and, and how that impacts at least black people specifically. Um, although that is a phenomenon that occurs in um, non-black um, groups of uh, people of color, that's just one salient example there. How white supremacy maps onto and impacts white people is that there was a decision, you know, made, you know, um, by their ancestors, right, um, to forfeit their ethnic identity um, in order to gain the wages of whiteness, you know, the benefits of whiteness, to have that accrued to them. Um, and so that's a cost, you know, to not know your ethnic identity and to bind your identity um, um, toward, um, onto a category, uh, which is made up of a, a, a fictional category uh, that controls everything, you know, at least in this, in this country and honestly the world now, right? The world over because of the way that white supremacy is now so ubiquitous just around the globe. Um, but to bind your identity um, toward a false identity that is rooted in the subjugation of other people groups, primarily um, Africans and people of African descent you know, um, over against, <laughs> uh, over against blackness, you know, that's just, it, it's wrong, you know? And so uh, what that does is it in, inflates the ego. Um, and yet it also causes a fragility, you know, because there's not a real, um, because if you take away whiteness, then what becomes, you know, of our white siblings, you know, then well, what identity do they have, you know? And so, um, because they have a hard time being able to, to re reclaim <laughs> what their ancestors had forfeited. You know, they didn't really have, you know, a say in that, but yet they still continue to live uh, and accrue the benefits and the privileges and they, and oftentimes are unwilling, right? Which with um, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King already told us, you know, people that are privileged, you know, have, a, a, they, they are very much unwilling to, to, they have a, uh, um, how can I say, there's a resistance. Let me say it that way. And this is just a summary of what he said, but, you know, to um, willingly give up their privileges. You know, that's really hard. That's really rare. Some might do it, but a whole group of people doing that, that takes an act of God, you know, for that to happen. And so what does it mean to walk around like a demigod, you know, and to set yourself up as a demigod? That is dangerous, you know, and you think about, um, um, the 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 commandments that we're given and how we're we're called not to make idols, you know, <laughs> and and we're warned against time and time again, little children, keep yourself from idols. Um, and we're not supposed to have any other gods before us, for before ourselves. That includes making ourselves into um gods, into a god, right? And was that not Satan's greatest sin? Was that not what caused him to fall? Um, from heaven is that he thought that he could <laughs> become a God that he thought he could be greater than God. Uh, and then he learned our way that he's not, you know, so it's dangerous. It's, it's, there's real consequences um, uh, for white supremacy um, to varying degrees for us all. 
And so when we talk about, you know, ecclesiology and, you know, how these things uh, manifest themselves in the church, and then we talk about how do we repent and repair in the church, um, beyond the most obvious financial um, repair, right? What are some ways that we can practice, you know, ecclesiastical reparations, um, both locally and denominationally? Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think the financing is huge. It's huge because we we haven't done that yet. So yeah. like, I'm, like, I'm like, let's not skip that step. That's really important. I think, as per, particularly in light of uh, when you think about the Supreme Court decisions last week, right, and and Biden's student loan um, uh, debt um, cancellation was blocked, you know, by the Supreme Court. Uh, that has very serious on the ground implications for black people in particular, especially black women, black men too, but black women, we carry the, um, uh, the burden of the, of that student loan debt, because many of us have um, at least one degree, um, but not just one, we have several degrees, you know, um, typically and incurred great debt, you know, to do that. I think that, um, and the reason why I don't want to skip over that is because Think about somebody like me, for instance. I absolutely would have benefited from that um, that student loan debt ga- cancellation. I would have done much. It wouldn't have done a bunch. It wouldn't have done all that I would have needed for it to do. Uh, and why is that? But it would have helped. It would have helped. But why is that? Let's think about the systemic reasons why that is. I went to a seminary where I was the only, for the last two years, I was the only Black woman in the MDiv program. And because unfortunately the school, um, uh, when you want to talk about systemic racism and then let's talk about the systemic sexism, let's talk about that. And the fact that I was getting an MDiv and and the fact that I was serving in my local church, you know, as a leader in my local church, an intern at my local church at the time, helping to write theological curriculum, you know, at my my church at the time, um, there had been... uh, uh, a scholarship that would have given me, I believe, if I can remember, it's been a couple of years now, so um, I could be wrong. Um, but sorry, I hear a truck coming. Sorry, uh, I would have been giving, I believe, a fifty percent off. You know, like um, half of my tuition, I believe, would have been covered if I would have, if I was a man. Oops, sorry about that. If I was a man, I would have received that scholarship that would have given me half, you know, that where half of my tuition would have been paid, you know, Um, and, uh, you know, and it was just so evil. (laughs) It's just evil, you know, just the ways that the sexism and the ways that misogynoir maps on to say to Black women. And, And this is a very clear example of how I incurred uh, way more debt than I should have for a terminal degree, by the way. And I'm doing a terminal degree, you know, um, and, and I'm still having, and I'm, and I'm saddled with that student loan debt uh, that a lot of my counterparts are not because simply because they're men. And, um, and this is not to toot my own horn, they're not horn, but they're not even doing half of what I'm doing publicly, you know, from the, from the institution that I matriculated from. Right. And so and there are other people that have um, that that have done public theology, but that have not done it, at least on the scale that I have been doing it 
by God's grace. Again, this was God's doing, not my own, you know, uh, but I say that to say that if I would have been a man, then this would not, this would be a non-issue. You know, um, I, I don't even, if I was a man, I don't even know, I don't know that I would even have this debt at all, you know, because <laughs> if I was a black man, maybe I would have gotten a fool, right? Maybe I would have gotten a fool, right? Just by the, because there, there, there weren't as many uh, people of color, right? There weren't black people at that institution like that, right? So maybe I would have gotten a fool, right? Who knows? Um, you know, so I think about that. And I think about the fact that even going into seminary, I didn't, my undergrad degree was almost completely paid for, almost, meaning the, the student loan debt, because I had been working in corporate America for some time. So the debt that I have now is, is literally the debt that I incurred <laughs> to follow the Lord, because this, this is what the Lord called me to do. And yet, you know, I, those systemic barriers mapped onto me in those ways that um, have been, um, yeah, heavy, heavy burdens, you know, heavy, heavy burdens, um, you know, and I, I'm, you know, uh, contrary to popular belief, or maybe this comes to some surprise, I'm not rich. <laughs> the work that I do is not popular work. It's not, it's not lucrative work. You know, I'm not rolling in the dough. <laughs> so, so I'm just making that very plain because I think that there are ways in which the church sets up systems and parachurch organizations set up systems that are um, prohibitive. To, to, to black people on the whole, but absolutely prohibitive <laughs> to black women in particular. And so, yeah. And so there should, you know, it beca because honestly, in some ways, technically, even though I'm not a reverend, what I do is clergy type work, it's ministerial type work. That debt should be canceled, you know, because I do, you know, more nonprofit adjacent type of work that should be canceled. But it's not right. So doesn't mean it won't be. I'm praying that it does, but that's just a, that I just use that example because people don't, I don't think people get it. <laughs> I don't think people get the sacrifices and the cost. So I don't want to move from that because like we didn't have the church ain't done that yet. So um, so yeah, obviously the the apology has to precede that, but but yeah, I think that's a very salient example. And these there, and I'm one of thousands thousands upon thousands. You know, of black women in the church that have similar stories, I would imagine, or um, they've got their own stories of how and why that debt, you know, became what it was. And then we want to talk about the usury, you know, of the student loan industry and how they've been hiking up in, in, interest rates, ridiculous rates, you know, and just how wrong that is. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't want to move from the money because we haven't done that yet. <laughs> it's step one, right? So yeah. I'm with you on that. Yeah, that's spot on. Agree. Uh, yeah, because you know, from my own experience, you know, I went to Trinity, and you know, as a man, you, I experienced that. And then my 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 fellow peers who were black women, you know, who weren't even getting, you know, uh, uh, recruited for a lot of the scholarships that even black men were being recruited for, and the harm that that's caused. And so I, I appreciate you bringing that up that's that's very important for us to be able to see um you know and my my question was kind of rooted uh uh where I first saw you for the first time I think was at uh the LDR conference uh some years ago and uh I think who was a Duquan talked about ecclesiastical reparations and it was the first time I ever thought about that idea that concept of like man 
like even the way that our churches are set up, <laughs> right? And the way that they function and the way that we do our services and the way that we do a lot of these things that we have just taken for granted and, and used on uh, a Sunday to Sunday basis have are drenched in white supremacy. And they would look completely different um, if uh, it was not for uh, the historical legacy of white supremacy in the church. And, uh, and I think a lot of people have never thought about that, that, that idea about, man, what, what are uh, the, the, the aspects of my worship experience, of uh, the institutions that I participate in, and how have they been shaped and crafted by the sin of white supremacy, of whiteness, and what does it look like to deconstruct, you know, some of those things, you know, and even in the book, I love your, the, the chapter on decolonizing discipleship. And I think, you know, that's a big aspect of it, of, you know, you know, even in a way in which we, we disciple and shepherd people, right, and we craft our, our, our communities is white supremacists in nature, but we have never looked at that. And speak more to that chapter. I think it's, I think it's really helpful uh, for, for people to be able to get some glimpses of your insights there. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking about it. Yeah, decolonized discipleship. Yeah, that was that 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 one has was brewing for a long while. I wanted to talk about, I mean, so for me, I, of course, I could list the many ways that white supremacy white supremacy shows up, you know, white churches, you know, that's to me, that's low-hanging fruit. I mean, you know, that's <laughs> You know, and I can speak to that because I know because of my own background, which I talk about in the book, um, because of my parents' um, history in Nigeria under colonialism, you know, they were raised in the Lutheran Missouri Synod Church. It's an African church, you know, but when they came to the U.S., the Lutheran Missouri Synod is a white denomination <laughs> through and through, you know, and so uh, we were the only Black family in that church uh, and the only Democrats, you know, for a long time like that, you know, so it was very interesting, you know, to be in a church like that. Um, so growing up, I, I I know what that looks like. I could name that and I do name that, you know, in, in the book, but I, I thought, well, the way I could problematize, you know, decolonize discipleship or, or really add even additional nuance to that is the ways that de um, colonized, you know, the ways of coloniality show up in black church spaces, right? With the ways in which, um, like one of the examples that I show, I've talked about is um, the misogyny, you know, that I experienced, you know, in one particular uh, uh, black church that I, I, I attended, you know, um, which was more like a, a black church, but it, it was a black church, but it was much more adjacent to white evangelicalism than any other Black church I've been to uh, or had ever been a part of, um, very much informed by white evangelicalism. So that was, it's, it's not even a typical Black church, I would say that at all. Uh, but but that's what I had to do, what I had to do, right? Being at my very white seminary, you know, and I'm being the only one, that was what I, that's where I, I had to be, you know, um, at the time, you know, because there was not a bunch of options, you know, um, for worship for me, you know, at that time. And so for me, uh, there, I, you know, that, that particular pastor, um, has deep, deep seated, um, misogyny. Um, and so, um, he would just say things that were objectifying, you know, and quoting, 
you know, uh, BBD. I mean, I just, you know, Belle Biv DeVoe, if people don't know, you know, um, and one of the most misogynistic, you know, lyrics, you know, objectifying women's, you know, um, bodies, you know, and so, and speaking about them in ways that are just not honoring, that they're not God glorifying, that are not praiseworthy, you know, uh, that are not dignifying, um, treating women uh, or talking about women um, in ways that Jesus never would have, you know, in, in ways that Jesus never did. And so decolonizing our discipleship has got to um, inform the ways that sermons are crafted, uh, the ways that sermons land on people uh, is really, really important, you know, and we can't, because the gospel in and of itself is offensive enough we don't need to add to it. We really don't. We don't need to add to it. The fact that we cannot save ourselves is very offensive um, to uh, to the Western mind <laughs> that values autonomy, that values um, uh, um, you know rugged individualism, uh, that that values being able you know to. Uh, you know, to, to get it out the mud and do what you need to do, you know, to be, to be self-made, right? Myths, 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 you know, <laughs> but it, it, that's offensive already, you know, to Western minds. So we don't need to add anything else to it. And so to me, it was really important to name that, you know, and then to name the ways um, that Black women um, can be shamed, you know, for our God-given bodily figures, you know, and the ways that God has formed us and shaped us, you know, even in those spaces. And so the ways that we um, um, within the Black church have to also uproot the ways of coloniality from our thinking and from our worship um, and from our ways of living. Uh, and so to me, I wanted to lift that up. That, that to me was the harder work <laughs> than naming white Jesus and white capitalism and, you know, the, the Christian flag and the American flag at the altar you know, of the church, which sometimes you might find at Black churches, by the way, you know, sometimes, not always, but sometimes you might see it there, you know, and so that's, not, you know, that to me was more the easy work. The harder work was, okay, how does this show up here <laughs> among my people in my, in these, in these Black worship spaces that I'm in, you know, and so it was a non-exhaustive, you know, examples in there, but those were the most salient, and I thought that those are the ones that people could really you know, relate to, or maybe hadn't thought about, you know, before. So that, that chapter is helpful. I think I, I, well, I like to think it's helpful. I try to, in all of those chapters, try to bring in some interventions, put in, you know, something, you know, that people can really tangibly begin to implement or think, you know, reframe their thinking around, you know, how they'll, how they will do worship. Well, Kimini, um, we're so thankful, um, to you for, for who you are and what you're doing. Um, absolutely. And, and for your time today, um, for being a, a friend and a teacher to us, Dustin and I, and, and so we're so honored that we get to share your voice with our community here in Northwest Arkansas. And so with that, Kimmy, do you have any last words for our audience today? Yeah, no. Yeah, good. Well, thank you so much, both to you, Lowell, and uh, Dustin for having me on the R Word <laughs> podcast. Okay. Um, you know, yeah, my... my um, I don't know. My my word to people is to just is to really um try Jesus. You know, um I think that uh we can I think the church unfortunately in America has not 
as of late, uh, well, I guess, well, I guess historically, honestly, has not uh, been a good uh, a, a, a good example, you know, of what it means to follow Christ wholeheartedly. Um, but I, my word of encouragement and exhortation to you, uh, the audience, is to try Jesus for yourself. And the way you try Jesus for yourself is by reading the word of God for yourself. And then also within community, I will say, you know, um, I do think that it is important to, to read that, to read it in community. And we see Jesus do that in the scriptures all the time, y'all, all the time. So, Because the Christian faith is not an individual, is not individualistic. Yes, Jesus saves us individually, but he saves us collectively. We are saved into a community of people, you know, so I say, try Jesus. Don't give up on the church. If you have, I would say, I understand, you know, but I would um, encourage you to try to find a good, healthy church. There are still good, healthy churches that actually do reflect the heart of Jesus. And I know that's hard to believe. You know, I think it's kind of sort of like dating in 2023. It's like, is there anybody good? It really is there because I'm, I'm done, you know, <laughs> but there, there is, we have to hold out hope that there really is. It takes, you got to be diligent. You got to be intentional um, and you got to stay prayerful. You know, you also got to pray <laughs> to find, you know, a um, good church community that you would like to be a part of. I mean, to pray that God would open up your eyes so that you can see um, not only the beauty of the gospel, but what the word of God is saying, you know, to you for your life. And I do believe that um, the Holy Spirit will meet you in that time, in your time of reading, uh, reading the word. And so that's my, honestly, that's, that really is my, my, um, parting word, if you will. I think that the days are evil. And I, I just, I, I really do believe that Jesus is the way and the truth, the way and the life. And I believe every word of the Bible. Yes, and amen. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, we Well, Dustin, we uh, wanted to spend a few minutes sharing some last words for our audience uh, because this is the last episode of season two of The R Word. Um, So I think for me, my last words are simply thank you um, to really the incredible guests we've had on the podcast this year. We've spoken to some really important people who have helped me on my journey towards racial justice, and and I hope that our guests have helped others on their journey too. Um, So, man, I'm so thankful for them. Thankful for you for being on this journey with me. It's really been good to rejoice and lament together. Um, Thankful for our friends at KUAF, Lee and Leah, for producing the podcast, and our friends across the street at Fayetteville Public Library, Joel and others um, who have partnered with us on the R Word events that we've had this year. Um, so yeah, I think I'm, I'm just really thankful. And, and to our listeners, too, um, people who, who have tuned in consistently um, and engaged the content um, and asked, you know, what do we, what do we want to do about this um, together in our community? So what about you, Dustin? Any last words? Yeah, I'm thankful as well. I'm thankful for 
this space um, that we've held to be able to have this uh, difficult conversation of, around repentance and repair. I'm thankful for all of the voices that have come and um, joined us on this podcast, uh, really uh, to help us understand that there's a lot of great thought work and leg work happening in the space of racial justice. Um, and I think sometimes we can underestimate how many people are speaking into that, how many mm-hmm. people are actually um, putting work in in that space. I'm thankful for you for uh, spearheading this initiative and um, to KUF for uh, hosting us and providing the opportunity for us to be able to speak into this. I think my last thought is just um, being energized um, kind of uh, anew to uh, the the deep need for repentance and repair um, and the optimism that something can and will happen um, around reparations. And so I look forward to seeing what happens in the days, weeks, months, years to come. I agree. I agree. Well... Friends, that's all for today's episode, which is the last episode of season two. Please come back for the first episode of season three next month. Roll on the ride along and go to our website, reparationsnownwa.com, to get information about the Zacchaeus Foundation, the R Word podcast, and the R Word events. Thanks. We out.